welcome to part two uh, of what I consider to be kind of a like three-part series of messages. Last week I said two parts. You get me for an extra week, so whether that's stressful for you or you're excited about that, uh, you have me to look forward to again on the 24th. So uh, first things first, if you weren't with us last week, I want to encourage you to go on to the Oxford, Web, Oxford Vineyard website directly uh, or to our podcast to listen to the last message because these kind of build on each other a little bit, and so there might be some things from last week that, you know, might help fill in some blanks if you didn't hear last week's message. So last week, I talked a little bit about looking back on last year, and I also talked about um, kind of what it looks like to invite the Holy Spirit to come and meet us and just touch parts of our spirits that have been sort of negatively impacted by the last 365 days, 2020, as, as some might call it. Uh, this morning, I want to look forward a little bit more. I sort of alluded to this last week. I want to look forward to what God is doing in the church in our time, not just in 2021, uh, but, but in this generation, in this time that we're living in. And uh, so I shared last week that basically every 500 years, starting with uh, the resurrection and then to the fall of Rome and then the Crusades and then the invention of the printing press and the, uh, the Reformation to present day, the world has undergone some sort of cataclysmic shift, some sort of change that completely uh, changed the way that people look at the world around them that totally changed our, our perception of what's happening in culture. And so I just kind of shared my opinion uh, that, that the period that we're presently living in is sort of the next in that sequence of earth-shattering events. I believe that that's going on around us. I think, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to say exactly what this period will be remembered for 500 years from now, but I suspect that it might be, you know, the internet age or the rise of artificial intelligence, neither of which are things that we should be afraid of. Uh, and I, I don't really want to go further into that today because I'm not necessarily trying to paint a picture for the next 500 years. What I want to talk to you about is what's happening inside of us in response to what's going on around us. Uh, you know, our, our part in all of this is to discern what we're to do with our everyday lives. What are we supposed to do uh, with how we treat people, how we relate to God, how we, uh, how we relate to the church as an institution? And so our good friend Putty Putman uh, often refers to this period of time in church history as the interdependence reformation. So that's our long word for today. That's our long confusing word for today, the interdependence reformation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then I'm going to explain that a little bit more, and we'll just kind of keep talking about that. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you just to, to come and, and rest on us this morning. God, I just ask that you would, uh, even right now, start to stir your Holy Spirit up inside of us, that we would be baptized again uh, in, in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would uh, infect us with vision, infect us with passion for you, Jesus, that you would infect us with compassion for people. God, that you would start to do those things inside of us, and, and that the words that I speak, and, and this communion later, and the worship uh, that we participate in, God, that all of those things would, would just go further to, to deepen our connection with you, and that you would speak to us through all of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, the dawn of the institutionalized church in Rome 
And much more so later on, as the church grew in political power, it brought on a, a people, a, a group of Christians, that we would sort of classify as completely dependent on the church. So the church grew in power, and the printing press hadn't been invented yet, right? So, so these people were dependent on, on the church for information. These people were dependent on the church for Bible teaching. These people were dependent on the church to, to find out who Jesus was, right? They, had, they really didn't have the means to, to uh, worship on their own in the way that we think of today. They didn't have the means to read the Bible uh, the way that we are able to today. And so in a lot of ways, from a faith standpoint, people were completely dependent on the church uh, beginning with, with sort of the rise of, of the church in Rome. And they were also dependent on the church uh, financially. They were dependent on the church for the forgiveness of sins, right? Because they believed that, you know, what do you have to do? You have to go to the church, and you have to receive uh, forgiveness from a priest who, you know, imparts that to you, and, and that's how you receive forgiveness of sins. And so this was good and bad for numerous reasons, and I'm not really going to discuss all those reasons right now, but what we need to understand is there was an age where people were completely dependent on the church for their faith. And then what came next was the Reformation in 1517. And I kind of uh, addressed that a little bit, but people had a relationship with the church that was, that was defined by independence for the first time, right? Because this guy, Martin Luther, he came along and he started to teach people, you know, that, hey, now you have this Bible in your hands and you don't need to be as dependent on the church for these things as we used to, to be, right? And it opened up an age of people saying, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't need to interact with the church exactly the way that we have been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Maybe I can do this faith thing a little bit more on my own. And I'll say, you know, the, the fruit of that is also positive and negative. And I'm not going to discuss what all those things are, but what, I'm, what I want to discuss is that today we're in a period of significant change in terms of how we understand our relationship with the church. And so that's what I'm addressing when I say interdependence reformation. So the word interdependence, what that means at the core is I don't need you, but I want you. So when we're dependent in relationship, you know, you think of a baby, right? A baby needs its parents for everything. A baby needs its parents to, to provide all of their basic needs and, and, you know, food and shelter and water and all those things, and they can't provide for themselves. And then you know, somewhere between the ages of like 15 and 18, this thing takes us over called independence, right? And we start to find out, I don't need my parents for anything, right? Did any of you ever experience that? I don't need them for anything, right? Forget this, because I've got it figured out. But hopefully, somewhere along the progression of life, you know, and, and some of us don't get this opportunity quite the same way that, that others do, we come to a place of interdependence with our parents that says, I don't need you, but I want you. I don't need you, but I want you. And so what I want to propose is that humanity has gone through that same cycle with the church, right? First, the church was structured in a way that made humanity completely dependent on it, right? And then we get an independent streak in us with the Reformation. And we say, wait a minute. I can do this on my own. I have my own Bible. I can interpret it myself. I can worship by myself in my house. I don't need all these other people to tell me what to do. And I think today, 
I hope, we're coming to a place of interdependence with the church as an institution. We can start to say, I don't need the church for all these things, but I want it. I want to be there. I want to be there with, with people who are like-minded and who are not like-minded, right? I want to participate in corporate worship. I want to participate in corporate vision and corporate mission. And together, you know, when we come together, we can have a, a dynamic impact on our communities, on culture, on, on all these things, right, that can't be achieved separately. Interdependent people are mature people who say, I don't necessarily need the church to love Jesus or live a moral life, but I want the church because Jesus himself chose it as his vehicle for the gospel, and I like that Jesus guy, and I want to do things his way. That's what mature people say. Immature, independent people, you know, they, they reject this idea. And they would say, I have this figured out on my own. I don't need community. I don't need other people, right? I don't need to worship in, in community with people. I don't need, you know, the teaching that comes out of this stuff or the, the fellowship that comes out of this stuff because I can do it on my own. I have it figured out. That's an immature point of view on the church. So God is leading us to have an interdependent relationship with the church. And I think that's a perspective that we need to start to embrace in 2021 if we haven't already. It's something that we need to start to understand. And, and the perspective that we need to bring to the church, right? Immature Christians come to the church and say, well, this church isn't good enough or that church isn't good enough because I don't get fed there. Mature believers come to a church and say, I have something to bring to the table. I have gifts, I have talents, I have innate things, vision that God has put inside of me, and I believe that this community needs it, and I'm going to be empowered, and it's going to be multiplied in an exponential way when I get in community with other people. And that's why, you know, empowerment and teamwork and things like that are part of our core values at Oxford Vineyard, because we want to embrace that idea that every person has something to bring to the table. Every person has something to contribute to our interdependent vision of what the church should look like in Oxford, right? So I want to build on that. And the next thing I want to talk to you about is, as I promised last week, a really interesting uh, and kind of intricate story from the Old Testament that I think sort of relates to what we're talking about here. So I want you to turn in your devices with me to Ezra chapter 3, and we'll start there. So I want to give you a little background before we read out of Ezra 3. Um, in all the oldest manuscripts that biblical scholars have at their disposal, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. They tell one cohesive story that, that sort of begins with Ezra and, and ends with Nehemiah, and so we read them as, as one work. And it sort of tells the story of three key leaders, Ezra, Darius, and Nehemiah. And uh, the three of them oversee what's sort of the reconstruction of the Jewish presence and culture in Jerusalem after being sent back there by King Cyrus, who is the king of Persia. So just some quick fun facts about Ezra and Nehemiah that I think you need to know if you're going to read these books the way they were meant to be read. There's another book at the very end of your Old Testament, and that book is called Malachi. Now, Malachi was a prophet who lived during the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
So he was, he was a contemporary of theirs. He was alive at the same time. Ezra, Darius, and Nehemiah are basically political leaders. And the book of Malachi is actually a prophetic critique of the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. So when you read Malachi, basically what's happening is Ezra and Nehemiah is sort of like the facts of what happened. It's like the historical story of what's going on with Israel. And then Malachi is this prophet who's like getting God's heart for Israel, and he's writing back to the historical story that's presented in Ezra and Nehemiah. So he's actually giving a prophetic answer to the historic events that are happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's tempting when we read Ezra and Nehemiah uh, to believe that, you know, they were, they were heroes of the faith, right? They were uh, just these, these great leaders, these great people who only did good things. But their contemporary prophet was trying to warn the people that they were basically leading the people the way of very subtle idolatry throughout these stories. And, and sort of leading people into this way of like empty religious worship of the temple instead of God. So I would encourage you, read Ezra Nehemiah and then read Malachi and like compare notes because it's really interesting. So anyway, that was kind of an aside. But we're jumping into this story here that's starting with uh, the reconstruction of the temple. So when the Israelites are captured and they're, they're let out, you know, the first temple is, is completely destroyed, it's leveled. And in 586 BCE, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonian Empire. So these people were taken into captivity. They were, they were taken uh, into Persia, into Babylonia, and uh, they were subject to the rule of the Persian Empire. And around some 50 years later, some of the Jews under the rule of King Cyrus were allowed to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to return to the spiritual home of the Jews. And the people get permission from Cyrus to rebuild the temple. And they've begun their work here in Ezra 3. So that's what's happening. So it says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, quote, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So we're setting the scene for what's about to happen. The builders have uh, completed the foundation of this new temple. So they're about to have a new house of worship. And, um, you know, this, this in itself was a huge undertaking. And there's something significant about the, the foundation of a building. You know, on it rests everything that has meaning. We know that the temple is the center of Jewish life. It's the center of Jewish worship, and it's at the center of uh, their holidays at that period of time, and their, their feasts and their festivals and their offerings and their sacrifices. And these people had no temple for years and years, and, and finally sort of had the beginning of the promise of restoring their way of life, right? So that's absolutely something to be celebrated. They're, they're excited about this. And then it goes on, and it says, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Awesome. But many of the priests and Levites 
and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So, did you catch that? Did you catch what what happened there? So the people are celebrating. They're singing songs to the Lord. They're celebrating the completion of the the foundation of this new temple, right? But then it says many of the priests and Levites, not all of them, but many of them, and heads of fathers' houses, who had seen the first house, wept. So what's happening here is there's a generation that had been around and had seen the first temple. And as the second temple was being built on the site of the first, they got caught in comparison. They got caught up in comparing what was to come to what was. So the sacrifices and the ceremonies of their worship were to remain the same, and the temple was built to specifications that were extremely similar to the first. However, there's one major difference, one major difference about the second temple. Does anybody know what it was? What was that? That's right. No ark, no cherubim. The Holy of Holies was empty because those things had been carried off by a kingdom that conquered theirs. So we've got to keep reading here beneath the surface of just the the, the very top layer of meaning in these scriptures. It would be easy to get caught up in the fact that what's written here is that, you know, the old generation was stuck in the past and the new generation was excited about the new thing, but that's not really what I'm saying. That's not really what I'm saying. The older generation was unable to embrace the second temple because they couldn't stop comparing it to the old one, and, and they got caught up in thinking that the aesthetics of their worship were the presence of God. They weren't just upset that it was different. They thought that God was absent because those items were not present in their place of worship. They mistook the decorations for the true presence of God. The folks who wept in this story didn't weep just because, you know, they loved the law so much and they didn't think it would be fulfilled or they didn't think that, you know, the second temple was good enough or whatever. They, they truly mistook a change of scenery for the absence of God. And who could blame them? You know, their cultural context revolved around these items, right? It revolved around these items of worship. It revolved around what was inside the ark and the meaning of what was inside the ark and the meaning of the cherubim in the, in the Holy of Holies. And, and, you know, it informed them that the presence of God depended on those items being present in their holy place of worship. However, some of them had the foresight to understand that these things were now relics because as their song states, they knew that God was good and his steadfast love for Israel endured forever. It says many who had seen the first house wept, but not all of them. And so what I want to say is, I believe the folks present in this room, in this gathering, on the stream, are the ones who are not weeping for the old house. I believe that Holy Spirit is putting vision 
inside of us for the future of what the church will look like. I don't think we're going to waste our time weeping for the old house. I hope you prove me right. Because we believe certain things about church, and we believe certain things about relationships, and we believe certain things about, you know, the way we live our lives because of cultural context. And with that being said, our cultural context is changing. That's what I'm referring to with this, you know, rapidly changing events of of history, right, and this new period that we're entering into. The collective consciousness of the world around us is different from what it was 40 years ago. Every nation on the face of the earth has changed. All of culture has changed, right? And they're going in a different direction. And so what I want to say is, you know, 40 years ago, it was effective to communicate the gospel from a relationship-centric perspective. That would sound like your sin separates you from God and repentance can bring you back to him. Have we ever heard that message, right? Well, it's true. It's just as true today. But what parts of the culture needs to hear today is an identity-centric gospel. And that's why we talk about identity so much here. It's, it's a gospel that says you have inherent value and importance and connection to Jesus is what reveals that. It's what uncovers your value and your importance and it uncovers who you truly are. Same gospel, but it sounds different. We've made the mistake of believing that some of the patterns in our thinking and our behavior are inherently Christian when in fact they're inherently cultural and the time for them has completely passed. And that's unsettling to many of us because I don't know what the next thing is yet. See, when we talk about the presence of God, when we talk about pursuing the presence of Holy Spirit and having passion for Jesus, right? Well, part of it is because he's so good and, and we want to we worship him, right? We want to honor his name. But part of it is because we don't know what's coming next. You know, he's the one that has vision for the future. He's the one that has the ideas that we need, the vision that we need, the perspective that we need for the day that's coming. Church has consisted of so many shapes and sizes uh, of gatherings over time, and the focal point of the church meeting has shifted so many times that it would be impossible to count. And, and people, therefore, you know, in in present day, believe that online forms of communication and gathering are less than because you can't touch or sneeze on the person beside you, right? But what I want to say is that this room is potentially twice as big or a hundred times as big because of that thing that's hanging from the ceiling. From May to July, did you hear that on the stream? There were amens. From May to July of 2020, At the height of the coronavirus lockdown, tens of thousands of people came to Christ taking Alpha Course online. In the United States and Europe alone, they don't have numbers from Asia because it's illegal there in a lot of places. The registration for the course was up over 50% worldwide while everyone was locked down. And according to a recent Barna study, Barna is just a church research organization, 40%, listen to this, only 40% of Gen Z says that when COVID is over, they want to return to primarily in-person worship. Only 42% of millennials say that they prefer primarily in-person worship. 
Baby boomers are the only generation that responded over 50% in favor of returning to in-person services primarily. And so, you know, when you hear that, if you're shaking your head and you're thinking, what's happened to this people, you're wrong. Uh, It's important to hear the voice of every generation and take into consideration their priorities, and that's why we're not going to completely change everything we're doing here, right? We're going to stay the course. We're going to continue to gather and worship in person, so don't panic when you hear me saying what I just said. But that also means that when we come up with new things to try, coming in this room and sitting down in seats for one to two hours and then going home isn't necessarily what most of them will look like. So some hear those statistics about church attendance and they equate them with apathy in these generations that I just listed, right? If you, if you shake your head at the thought of millennials or you shake your head at the thought of Gen Z, what I want to say is that people are hungry to make a difference and people are hungry for spiritual truth. That point that people are hungry to make a difference matters because the church needs to embrace interdependence. Because when the church embraces interdependence, all of a sudden, there's a place for all the people who want to make a difference to belong in the church. When the church embraces empowering people, right, to live out their life's purpose within the context of the church, instead of saying, well, you know, this is what we do and this is how it looks, and if you want to do that, you have to do it over there. That's when... We will, we will increase in dynamic impact. So if you're thinking that things will go back to the way they were before COVID in the church, you're wrong. The best part about that is that it's okay uh, because we're not gonna get the message confused with the method in this church, right? We're not gonna get the message confused with, with, with the method. And so when our aesthetic is different, when our surroundings are different, when the way it feels or the way it sounds is different, we're not going to mistake that for the absence of God, right? We're going to lean into it, and we're going to believe that we're a part of the new thing that God is doing. The real core reason that I believe we needed to take a look at this story from Ezra 3 entering 2021 is that, you know, it's even deeper than what I've already said because it's absolutely critical that we have a culture and an attitude of unity among one another during this period of of tumultuous change in the world. And so, you know, if you feel like I have opposed you with the things that I just said about these statistics or about online church or about whatever, I'm I'm not opposing you. I'm not opposing your perspective. I'm not opposing that. What I'm saying is that, you know, these things are real. These numbers, you know, those are, those represent real people, real things that are going on. And so we've got to work together to figure out how we're going to handle that. Christ transcends contemporaneity and tradition. So there's another like five-point word for you today, contemporaneity. What does that mean? It just means contemporary, contemporaneous, the new, the new stuff, right? Jesus is so much bigger than the next big thing. Jesus is so much bigger than what's on the cutting edge, right? But Jesus is also way bigger than what we've always done. He's bigger than both of those things. And that's, that's why we have to explore the space in between. As much as it sounds like I'm not talking about just being on the cutting edge or being on the next big thing, I don't like that flavor of the month kind of teaching because, because it's fleeting. 
because it goes away, it disappears, it's thin, right? Like those catchy slogans that I shared with you last week. What I'm talking about is that, you know, I'm interested in something deeply meaningful and sustainable that's going to reach the culture with the true message and true goodness of Jesus. And I don't have a lot of answers for exactly what that's going to look like yet, but what I do know is we need to figure it out together. I love to study the ancient contemplative tradition that exists within Christianity. If you know me well, you know that I love monks and uh, you know, monasteries and, and the mystics and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's my stuff. I love the tension that exists in the idea of using ancient methods for determining what comes next inside of us and around us. Because people long ago who knew Jesus, you know, they, they taught their disciples in the things that Jesus taught them. And they taught their disciples in the things that, that Jesus taught them. And there's some real core valuable truths in that old stuff. And so we've got to use the old stuff to inform what's coming next. I love the tension that's inside of that because it pushes us to look back and look forward. We read about things being made new and our minds being renewed and our lives being transformed. And when we read those things, we realize that Jesus is a reformer, not an originalist. Jesus likes to make things new. He likes to, to create something beautiful from ashes, right? He likes to take that stuff and, and transform it into something that looks like his father. And he came because he was interested in making something new, to point us in the direction of the future, not restore what used to be. Because if he was interested in restoring what used to be, the book would end in Eden. But it doesn't, right? The book doesn't end in Eden. It ends in the consummation of all things. It ends in the Father sitting on the throne saying, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's why we have to get excited about what was and what's coming. Because Jesus uses the pieces that we have now to make us into something new as a people, as a church, as individuals, right? All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. Because he doesn't get rid of them. Because he likes the old stuff. He likes to make it into something new. That's his passion. So I want to make this personal. I want to ask you, how does Jesus want to make something new through you? This idea, this whole concept affects the way that we live our lives. It might sound really philosophical, the way that I've just described it. But if we really believe that stuff, it affects the way that we speak to each other. It affects the way that we interact with culture. The point of all this is that Jesus is, in fact, making all things new, even you, if you'll have him. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And, and goes on to paint this beautiful picture of, of the new heaven and the new earth. And, and man, it's awesome. God loves to meet us where we are and gradually transform us from the inside out. So I'm not asking you to leave here completely different today. Because that's, that's not realistic, right? But what I'm asking is that maybe we leave here expecting to be completely different in five years. Or we leave here expecting to be completely different in ten years. People who think that God likes to destroy things and start over are wrong. I think that's why, you know, 
the whole Noah story is, is included in the canon of Scripture because that promise that he makes in the end is very important because he promises that he's not going to start over again. He promises that he's going to use what we've got to make something new. The point of the New Testament is that God is actively partnering with humanity to bring about a new reality. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying God's activity inside of you is at hand now. He's about to make something new with you. And so this week, I want, to, I want you to try to think about a couple things with me. We've got to put this whole thing into practice because just knowing the principle isn't good enough. The greatest error on the part of the people of Israel, if we return to that story from Ezra, the greatest error was, was not that some of the older generation was looking backwards. That wasn't the biggest mistake that they made. The biggest mistake, you have to read between the lines to find that because it's easy to get fixated on that part of the story. The mistake was that the younger generation wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the hearts of the older generation. And the older generation was out of touch with the hope of the younger generation. That's why that chasm formed, right? That's why there was such great difference between them. That's why people couldn't discern between the celebration and the worship and the weeping. And so if people are going to be able to discern between our celebration and our worship and our weeping as a people, we've got to shrink that gap. We've got to come closer together. Are you with me? I believe that Holy Spirit is asking two things of us in this day as we move forward as a local church, as part of uh, the Vineyard Movement, as part of the wider church in Oxford. The first one is that we would be united as generations across gaps in experience, understanding, and opinion. In order to be united across generations in spite of difference in experience, understanding, and opinion, we have to have conversations about those things. And so if you are sitting in this room and you feel like I don't understand your experience or your opinions, I just want to repent to you right now because that means I haven't done a good enough job of coming to you and seeking to understand those things. And I want you to know that I want to understand those things. One of the most destructive things that can possibly happen in the context of what God wants to do in Oxford is to separate the generations that carry the promises and prophetic words from the past, to separate those away from, from the generations that carry the zeal to live them out for the next four or five decades. That's the most destructive plan of the enemy right there. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the, it's not the, you know, this or that or whatever. The most destructive thing the enemy could do is separate the generation that holds the promises and prophecies for tomorrow from the generation that holds the zeal to see them lived out. This is what I'm going to talk about on the 24th when we come back. But, but hear this, everyone in this room, it's our responsibility to be pursuing one another. If our small groups and our prayer times and our Bible studies are only made up of people who are the same age as us, plus or minus 10 years, that's a problem. And I'm as guilty of it as you are. It's a problem that we've got to solve, right? The second thing 
that I think Holy Spirit is asking of us now is that we would be paying attention to the transformation that he wants to bring and pursue being transformed in our personal lives. As I said last week, I believe that we're being invited into a time of, of bringing our raw, honest questions before the Father uh, because he's not cold and he's not distant and he's not angry. He handles your questions and your uncertainties and your frustrations the way that we see Jesus handle them as he walks around and talks to people. God the Father is like Jesus in the way that he sees you, right? Father loves you. You know, Father is pursuing you with, with fiery passion because he wants to see you come to know the Son better and better. So I know we talk about this a lot, but we're in this for life change. I mean, I feel like every time I'm up here, I'm talking about being transformed and changing our lives and whatever, but I feel okay about that because Paul talked about it too and some other people that I respect. So, you know, I, I, we have to be in this to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if we're not, go home. Because we, man, we need that so bad. I want to I present you with a few challenges that I think will help us accomplish that. Number one, if you're under 50, if you're under 50, I want you to reach out to someone this week who's over 50, and I want you to get together and spend some time hearing their heart and asking them about the promises that they have from God, whether they came yesterday or a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. And, and I want you to ask them about the things that they're dreaming about. So if you're under 50, that's your assignment. You need to get together with somebody that's over 50. You need to ask them about the prophetic promises on their life and their dreams. And if you're, if you're over 50, I want you to reach out to someone under 50 and get together and ask them, what are you hopeful for? What do you want to see God do in your life? Those are the two things. What are you hopeful for? And what do you want to see God do in your life? And I believe when we start to share things like that, it's going to start to knit us together as community. And it's going to start to bridge those generational divides that separate us. And then we'll start to be able to have conversations about our difference in experience and understanding and opinion. And we'll be able to move forward as an interdependent church with dynamic impact in the city of Oxford when we're not divided along generational lines when we start to understand what it looks like to actually be a community, not three or four communities in one room that pretends to be one community. Does that make sense? And then your final, and oh, by the way, if you're 50, just pick one. <laughs> like, is anybody 50 in the room? 50 on the, on the nose? Next week or something, right? Okay, so, so yeah, next week you get to just pick. <laughs> yeah, if you're 50, it's a journey of self-discovery. <laughs> the third thing, all of us need to pursue the Holy Spirit and find out how he wants to make us new, right? Because Father's sitting on the throne right now, and he's saying, behold, I'm making all things new. And that includes you, if you'll have him. So do you need your mind renewed with respect to your kids? Do you need your mind renewed with respect to your spouse? Do you need your mind renewed with respect to coronavirus or Donald Trump? There are all sorts of ways that he wants to make us new, right? There are all sorts of ways that he wants to make us new. 
And so whatever the, whatever the thing is that's been you know, frustrating you, that's, that's been making you anxious, that's been making you worried, that's been making you, you know, uncertain of the future that God has for us. I'm here to tell you, number one, that God has a future for us. It goes far beyond what any of us can see, and we're supposed to work toward that thing, partnering with Jesus to make all things new. And number two, he wants to come in and he wants to meet you there, and he's going to do it in a gentle way, he's going to do it in a kind way, and he's going to do it in a way that, that causes you to love Jesus even more. I really believe that. Now, for some of us, that might look different from others. You know, for, for some of us, it might not necessarily feel gentle or kind when Holy Spirit comes and, and starts pointing out, you know, the, the things that he'd like to make new inside of you. For some of us, that might be a little frustrating, and you might only see that it was gentle or kind uh, on the back end, right? Because we're so attached to those things, and we love them so much. But he wants to do that. So, do we have our three assignments? We have our three assignments. Share your journey with someone. Share what Jesus is working on inside of you because when we do that, it'll bring us closer. You know, I can say that, that the, the folks in this room that I have shared part of my journey with, important parts of my journey with, I feel closer with you for doing it. We need that. We need that, even if we don't agree, right? Even if we're not all on the same page, We've got we've to start doing that. So I'm going to pray, and then John's going to come up, and we're going to take communion, uh, and it's going to be awesome. So Holy Spirit, we just thank you for uh, what you've done in the past and what you're doing next. God, I thank you that um, as a church that was birthed from a word about a new thing, that we are set on the new thing that you're doing now. It might not be the same new thing that it was in 2009, but you have, you have called us to be people focused on what you're making new. And so we just say yes to that right now, Lord. I just ask for the empowerment, for the boldness to step into these three things uh, in a way that would transform us, in a way that would transform our perspectives, in a way that would transform our relationship with you. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would, you would just breathe on, on all of this and cause something new to come alive in our hearts, something new to come alive in our minds this week. In Jesus' name, amen.